And what I was trying to say earlier is that I actually have fun worshiping Jesus with you. This is a highlight of my week. And hopefully it is yours as well. We enjoy Jesus around here. We do not endure him. <laughs> and so thank you for engaging in the singing. I don't know if you realize that when you're doing that, you are also edifying everyone else around you. It's not just about your personal experience in worship. You are also participating in this ministry together as a church family. So I'm excited that we can continue to do that together in the Word now, specifically in John 4. Thankfully, Bob did a fantastic job at reading the entire text for us. I will not read it again, but do turn in your Bibles there. If you're a guest with us, please uh, just take advantage of the Bible that's provided in the seat back in front of you. You'll find the text on page 888. And what I think would be great is if you kind of follow along with this. I will not read every verse over again, but I will assume some familiarity with the story. But that being said, I need to ask an opening question. This is kind of going to frame things like a choose-your-own-adventure novel, but I don't want you to think that this is an ill-prepared message. But I need to know something before I engage in this text with this particular group of people. How many of you would say, this is going to be a hand-raising thing, so get, well, let's practice. Uh, how many of you believe today is Sunday? Raise your hand. Okay, thank you. All right, now you've got the nervousness. Question. Here's the real question. <laughs> uh, how many of you are familiar with this story in John 4? Okay, put your hands down. Now, this is going to be harder. I'm going to need you to summon some courage. Uh, how many of you would say, I'm actually not that familiar with the story in John 4. I get that peer pressure is fighting against you here. Anybody? One, two, three. Okay. In light of the general interest of the group, that 9.5% are very familiar, this is what I'm going to do. I'm actually going to spend less time reviewing the story itself and more time discussing its significance. I'm going to spend less time discussing the story, more time on significance. Now, I will not skip the story, but I think it's really important that we understand the significance. Now, to begin with getting to the meat of the story, I need to go ahead and clear the air about a common misconception regarding this particular story. If I were to ask you to give a title to the story, the 99.5% of you that are um, very familiar with it, you would probably call it something like the woman at the well. The woman at the well. But I want you to understand that when you read the entire story, it is not actually about the woman at all. And to help you with that, I will read just the opening and the closing of the story. If you want to know what a story is about, Read the introduction, and then read the conclusion. And then you could check out the table of contents. I'm just going to give you the introduction and conclusion, and you tell me if you think this story is about the woman at the well. All right, let's look at verses 1 through 6 again. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. 
And he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now flip over, if you need to, to verse 39. Here's the conclusion. There's the introduction. Here's the conclusion. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. I think it was that um, eminent philosopher and blanket-toting theologian Linus who said, there are three things I've learned never to discuss with people. Religion, politics, and the great pumpkin. Obviously, that comes from that classic special in which Linus has this unique belief in this great pumpkin, and he says, I can't discuss this with people. It's too personal. It, it, it causes uh, too many rifts in relationship. And what's interesting to me about his statement is that the first two things you totally expect. There, there are certain topics like religion or politics, that we know are automatically inflammatory. These are, in many ways, what I would call social taboos uh, that often get discussed in our own day, these things that could tear us apart, the things that you don't discuss in polite company, the things that you wouldn't bring up at a, at a dinner party, or the things that you're not supposed to talk about at work. Uh, the, the danger of these particular things, at least in the culture, these things would give up on the microphone altogether. I need some direction from above. <laughs> you, sorry, that above, not this. this yeah. All right, so I'm just going to keep going. If it goes out, it goes out. This is the last time I address this issue publicly. Are we ready? Okay. But there are certain topics that will tear us apart. It's interesting, in the moment in which we live, there's actually this term that's been around for a little over 30 years. cultural others. A repugnant truly like gets on your but a lot not so one describes it uh, this way. It is a unique phenomenon in which one of us sees another group of people inevitably as repugnant to some degree. One psychiatrist put it this way. You have an in-group 
you have an out group and a far group. All right, hang with it. We got three groups, in group, out group, far group. Members of the far group will probably be considered more different from you than members of the out group. So there's this group that's out there somewhere, and then there's this out group, but they very likely take moral and political stances that you find abominable. But the interesting thing about an out group is they do not arouse the same repugnance. I mean, the far group does not arouse the same amount of repugnance as the out group because you don't have to live with them. Think of a tribe and the, 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 the religious practices that they have, or maybe uh, some people in another country who adhere to a form of government you find disgusting, you'd be like, oh, well, they're way different than me. But they're not a problem for you because you don't have to interact with them. If someone goes to the deepest, darkest tribes of the Amazon and finds the moral practices of a certain tribe repugnant, they still get to fly home and not regularly interact with those individuals. There's this group with us on certain things This causes our stomach to turn in some ways. Now, I could describe most of practical ways want to do so in fear of actually targeting or one particular group over another. All I will say is that the repugnant other most easily demonstrates itself through the sphere of social media. I just want you to think of the people that you see in social media feeds that draw out this particular ire or angst within you leading you to want to comment in some derogatory way if you knew that you could. Repugnant is a very strong word, but it is just another way of expressing taste. Because of the way that we're wired, because of the way that God has made us, because of the experiences that we've had, we all develop certain tastes. We have an in-group that we like to be around, we have people that we feel comfortable with, and there's clearly in everyone here some kind of out group, some type of group of people that you don't naturally associate with, the people that you would normally shy away from. And here's the tremendous thing about this text. It presents not merely the woman at the well, but it presents Jesus as the reacher of the perceived repugnant. If you want to know what John 4 is about, don't focus on the woman. Focus on the one to whom she is speaking. This text is not just about living water. This text is about Jesus as the rescuer of the repugnant, as evidenced by the repeated emphasis upon this one word that happens over and over and over again throughout the text, Samaritans. Samaritans. Now for you, the word Samaritan is more than likely just an ethnic group of some kind. You think, oh, well, there's Jews and there's Samaritans and you know, there's other Middle Eastern context, in the, I mean, uh, cultural groups in that particular time. But for people who were Jewish, Samaritans were the repugnant cultural other. In fact, uh, one scholar even said that even the word Samaritan was for some Jews the equivalent to some of our strongest four-letter cuss words. 
Like they didn't even want to say it. They didn't even want to talk about it. And what you see here in this particular text is Jesus engages the most high and meaningful level with this particular republic. In fact, this is the longest conversation in all of the Bible that's ever recorded from the lips of Jesus. And it's not with somebody of high status. It is someone who is considered to be an outcast, someone who is on the outside of things, this Samaritan. And so, though the story is often labeled woman at the well, it should be viewed as a testimony to Jesus as the rescuer other. And what I would like to do, give you the uh, account, if you will, the story. Three scenes, if you will. And then we'll give some applications. It's 42 verses. I have to figure out some way to make it like simple. So I'm going to present the account in three acts and a couple of applications. For those of you who take notes, those three acts are as follows. There's the context in verses 1 through 6, the conversation in verses 7 through 26, and then the climax in verses 27 to 42. Context, conversation, climax. The context is pretty simple. When we read verses 1 through 6, you notice that God providentially moves Jesus from Judea to Galilee through Samaria. God arranges this. I want you to look in your Bibles here, please, at John chapter 6, verse 4. Notice it. And he had to pass through Samaria. John 6, 4. I mean, 4, 6. Sorry, not 6, 4. 4, 6. 4, 6. He had to pass through Samaria. What is this? What is he talking about here? Now, there is just a natural way in which Jesus had to pass through Samaria. He's wanting to leave where he was. Judea is like the southern part of Israel. If you think of this particular country as something about the size of like uh, New Hampshire, for example, you're going to know that like it's, it doesn't cover that much space. The bottom part is Judea, the top part is Galilee, and then there's this sliver of space in between known as Samaria. Now, naturally, if you wanted to stay in Israel and make your way from Judea, the south, and go up to the north, which is Galilee, as Jesus is doing here because he recognizes that John the Baptist's ministry is taking off, they're sensing some competition, he doesn't want there to be any competition, so he decides to move on, he has to go through this particular region. Well, technically, he doesn't have to. You know what? If he wanted to, as some Jews would do, he could have crossed over the Jordan River gone through the Gentile territory, and then crossed the Jordan River back and gone into Galilee. But if he wanted to stay in Israel and just take the most natural route, he had to get up through Samaria. It would be kind of like someone in the continental United States, for those of you who know your geography well, if you wanted to make it to the state of Maine and stay in the United States, you must go through New Hampshire. There's no way around it, unless you go to Canada or unless you swim through the Atlantic Ocean. But it's landlocked. And so Jesus finds himself, by God's providence, having to go through this area that was despised by most Jews of the day. You're like, what's their problem? 
Why, why do they not like the Samaritans? Well, the quick story behind that is that several hundred years before this, the nation of Assyria had invaded Israel, and you know what they did? They took the best and brightest of the people who lived in this northern kingdom of Israel, and they shipped them off to Assyria. So what that left was all the basically the, the cultural leftovers. If you weren't considered the best and the brightest, you were left in that area. And guess what happened? Assyria expanded its borders, and in light of that, the Assyrians came and married these non-cultural elites. And so for the Jews who loved the idea of being the pure people of God, they literally considered Samaritans to be, and these are their terms, not mine, ignorant half-breeds, illegitimate. In fact, there was incredibility between them that would go on over hundreds of years. So the, the Jews would come back, and the Samaritans actually offered to help them rebuild the temple. But listen to this. The Jews said, no, we don't want your help. So they turned them down, and the Samaritans were like, fine, we'll build our own temple on Mount Gerizim. They built their own temple, and then the Jews, listen to this, they retaliated by saying, all right, we're going to destroy your temple. And in about 200 B.C., a guy named John Hicranus comes in, and he abolishes the Samaritan temple. Well, tit for tat. They then actually take, like, some bones. <laughs> I mean, it just gets really gross. But they actually take some, some desecrated remains a few hundred years, a couple hundred years later, and like spread them all over the Jewish temple to keep the people from being people without being defiled. It's like a straight up Hatfield and McCoy kind of thing, but played out on a national scale. So the point is, friends, like this was a despised territory. Nobody wanted to be there, and yet God, in His goodness and kindness, arranged it so that Jesus would have to go through this particular place. And notice it says that He was wearied and He gets tired. In the middle of the day, it's noon, naturally, so the sixth hour is the sixth hour from sunrise, 12 o'clock, and he's sitting at this particular well. God arranged it so that Jesus would end up sitting in this hostile, repugnant, if you will, territory. So there's your context. But now notice the conversation. That the stunning nature, friends, of what happens in these next few verses can hardly be captured by 21st century Western minds. We live in a land that is by no means perfect, but it was by, no, our land is by no means as problematic racially as that particular place and time. It, Jesus will engage in a conversation with a Samaritan woman, and there are three cultural strikes thrown here. And for the outsider looking in, it looks like she misses every pitch. The first one is that he talks here to a woman. <laughs> Again, I am referring to the values of that day, not this day, but friends, if you know the Middle East, even today, you are not allowed to speak to a woman directly. You're not even to make eye contact. This is not something from just 2,000 years ago. This is something that still is in full force today. And what does Jesus as a single rabbi do? 
He sits at the well and engages this single woman in the middle of the day. Taboo number one, torn to pieces and stomped upon. He engages in a conversation with her alone. Notice that the text says that the disciples went off to get food. So here he is by himself. And though the Old Testament itself had a high view of women, the intertestamental period where the Jews actually stopped focusing, the Jews and the Samaritans stopped focusing on God's revealed word, it led to, ladies, and I hate to say this, but this is just the way it was, this inherent misogyny. This, uh, this sexism is a better way to say it, excuse me, like where they would actually look down upon women. In fact, one of the, the tractates that was published in that particular day, this was the comment on how to treat womankind. It says, and talk not much with womankind. They said this of a man's own wife. How much more of his fellow's wife? Hence the sages said, he that talks much with womankind brings evil upon himself and neglects the study of the law and at last will inherit hell. This was the popular view. So Jesus intentionally misses on that swing. Not only that, but he talks to a woman from Samaria. We already mentioned that, but you do need to know that it was fact at that particular time that to receive anything from a Samaritan was to equal automatic defile. So for Jesus to say, give me a drink of water would imply that he would have to drink from her water bucket, which is considered to be defiled. And so Jesus is inviting ritual defilement upon himself by even partaking of the same thing that she would put her lips on. And then the third one is that it's at a well in the middle of the day. Uh, frankly, friends, just the, the quick story here is that in Old Testament uh, mind, I mean, the Old Testament mindset, uh, a well is a place to pick up a woman. If you don't remember those stories of and Isaac, they found their wives where? At a well. And this particular one is even more compromising for Jesus because he's talking to her at a well in the middle of the day. Now, there would be no reason for a woman to be at a well in the middle of the day unless she had somehow been socially ostracized. You're thinking, well, yeah, it gets hot in the middle of the day. Why not go to the well? But women who would carry these big clay water pots on their head would try to do that typically as a group either in the early morning or the late evening. They would help one another. No one in their right mind, would go to the well in the middle of the day by themselves unless they were a social outcast. In fact, I was just driving down Oaks Boulevard here the other day. It was Wednesday. It was hot. And there was a woman running down the street at like 1.30 in the afternoon. And I'm like, what is she thinking? <laughs> like, what is her problem? Now, I was thinking, you know, like for her case, this is just wow, what a really unfortunate decision. She probably should have ran early in the morning or late at night. But I didn't think anything of her morality. But for somebody to see a woman at a well in the middle of the day would be in some ways indicating something of her morality. Finding a woman in some dark corner of New York with red lights at midnight. It's not the kind of thing that you think would, would generate a positive impression, and yet Jesus is engaging here. And so he is, he is crossing every line, and then the conversation ensues in verses 7 through 15 about water. 
So if you're, you're wanting to know how this whole thing fits together, verses 7 through 15, Jesus talks to her about the water. That's her felt need. And then he'll talk to her in verses 16 to 26 about worship. That's her factual need. So there's a felt need, there's a factual need. Now, when he's talking to her about the water, just get the flow of this. Verse 7, he asks for a drink. Uh, in verse 8, and then in verse 9, she's intrigued that he would ask, because she gets it, like, why in the world are you talking to me, a woman in the middle of the day who's from Samaria? You're a Jewish rabbi. And then in verse 10, he gives her an offer. What does he say? He says, look, if you knew who I was, if you knew what I had to offer, you would ask me for a drink. And what does Jesus offer you living water? Now, you hear living water, and you think, a oh, water that produces life. And yet, you know what she would hear with living water? She would think running water, as opposed to stagnant water. And so she continues the conversation on those lines. She's like, okay, well, how can I then find living water? How can I find running water? Are you, as a Jew, someone who doesn't even live in this area, do you know something that our forefathers didn't know? that you will have access to some well that our own ancestor Jacob didn't have access to. Notice how she doesn't understand what Jesus is getting at. And so he clarifies in verses 13 and 14. Look at it there. John 4, verses 13 and 14. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So he is describing something that will satisfy her every thirst and desire, something that will quench the deepest thirst within her, something that will forever and permanently satisfy her. And she gets it to some degree. She's thinking in verse 15. Notice how she's interpreting this. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water. And this is heartbreaking so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. You notice those last lines. We haven't even learned of this woman's sexual history yet, but we're already clued into the fact that she is ashamed to even come out in public. If Jesus can offer her something practical that will shame her, from physical death, and also keep her from social shame, she wants it. She wants it. That's what she is craving. That's what she thinks that Jesus is offering. And friends, this is not outside the bounds of what Jesus is offering. He is offering her a solution to her shame. He is offering her a solution for physical death. But he is offering her something much deeper than that. That's why I'd have you understand, especially those of you who claim to know this story so well, that this conversation about the water is actually a conversation about her felt needs. Those things are not irrelevant. Very often, people will want religion, or they will want Jesus, or they will want the gospel because they think that he will ease psychological pain or that he will deliver one from the fear of dying, or that he will lift one out of depression, or that this could lower crime in society and make the streets safer for one's family, or that it can curb corruption so that you don't have to pay as many taxes, or that it could provide social community for you and your children. Those are those practical benefits of the gospel message, and I want you to know that the gospel can do all those things. But that is not 
what the gospel primarily does. Jesus will not leave the conversation at the level of her felt need, so he goes on to talk about her factual need. So here the conversation switches. Are you ready? It switches from water to worship. Notice how Jesus is now in full control of the conversation despite her attempts to bucket. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. So notice, she's thinking felt needs. Now he's going to get to the real need. And he introduces a conversation. Naturally, he invites her to bring her husband. Okay, so if she's saying, all right, give me this water. I want to drink this water. Okay, well, great. Go get your husband. Come back and tell me. <laughs> Have you ever uh, done the, uh, the old like free Disney ticket kind of thing and, and been in on the sales presentation for the free timeshare? Did you know? Because I've tried it without your spouse present? If they know, you can't just send in the hardened individual in the relationship that's good at saying no to everybody to, to clean up business. They will make you bring the softer side. Jesus knows better. He's like, look, this is going to be a family decision. All right, you go get your husband, you bring him back, and now let's talk about water. But what's he doing? He's ultimately revealing her deepest need. He strikes a chord of shame because she doesn't come all out and do things. She tells him the bare minimum. Notice verse 17, the woman answered, I have no husband. That's true, Jesus says. You're right in saying, I have no husband. Verse 18, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now notice this, Jesus exposes her sin here. I mean, she is not only a Samaritan, but she is a sexual rebel by any standard in that country. So she's not only been divorced, but she's potentially been divorced five times. And I understand that the text doesn't say that she's been divorced. I guess it could be that all five of her husbands died. Well, she's a black widow. So she's divorced multiple times. She's a murderer, potentially. I don't think that's the case. Or the husbands, maybe, they just naturally died. But the truth of the matter is, if the husbands just died of natural causes, she wouldn't be ashamed to go to that well. The indication here is that this woman has a sordid sexual history. Jesus reveals it. He is fully aware of it. That is not a surprise to him at all, and yet he is inviting her to partake of this water anyway. Her race and her morality, or lack thereof, had zero to do with Jesus' desire to see her partake of eternal life. But she needs to first recognize that she has a deeper problem than being ashamed when she goes to the well, or a deeper problem than getting thirsty at night. The deeper problem is that of sin. And so she's starting to feel that this is a religious figure, this guy has some kind of supernatural abilities. He knows something that I have not told him. And so what she does is probably, I don't know for sure, but it seems as if she diverts the conversation away from her morality to popular debate in religion. You've, you've been in those conversations before, right? 
you talk to somebody and you feel like you're starting to make some progress and you're, you're maybe about to be able to share the gospel and then all of a sudden they, they flow, throw up like one of those like flares just to get your attention off of the, the conversation like, oh, oh, okay, so you're a Christian. So why do uh, so many good people die? Oh, you're, you're a Christian. So does that mean everybody who doesn't know Jesus is going to go to hell one day? You know, or I believe this, I grew up believing that. What would you say to this? It, it becomes a topic of debate. No longer is it about morality and need. Uh, now it just becomes, all right, well, let's make this a, a religious conversation uh, so that we can avoid the personal conversation. It seems that's what she's doing because she brings up a historical debate between the Jews and the Samaritans. Here's what you need to know, friends. They were different not only racially, but they were different religiously. You know what the source of their difference was? The Samaritans, they only believed in the first five books of the Bible. The Jews believed in the entire Old Testament. And do you know how that expressed itself? The Samaritans, because they only believed in the first five books of the Bible, thought that the primary spot for religious worship should be Mount Gerizim. And the reason why they thought that is because so many things took place there. Abraham and Isaac built altars there in the Old Testament. It was also the spot where Moses blessed the people after he gave them the law. So they just kind of logically deduced that, all right, if we're going to really worship, we're going to do it here in Samaria at Gerizim. But the Jews, who actually believed the entire Old Testament, naturally remember that, that promise to David and to Solomon, you're going to build a temple in this particular place, in Jerusalem, in Zion. And so the, the big difference between the two was, all right, in their minds, we worship here, you worship there. And she says, okay, Jesus, uh, what are you going to say about the debate? Where do you stand on this particular issue? Like, how, how does worship actually take place? And I want you to notice how Jesus will correct her, even though she tries to bring up this religious objection Verses 21 to 24, this is so important. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Notice this. He is redefining her understanding of worship. She was like, all right, here's the debate, Jesus. It's about the place. It's just about the place. And Jesus says, no, you don't understand worship at all. It is not about a place. It is about a person. It is about the personal God of the universe who is, listen to this, theology bomb for a moment. God is spirit. Now, if God is spirit and does not possess a body, is the issue of worship really time and space, like physical location? Like, if you wanted to have a meeting with me, we'd have to make sure that we were at least in the same time in the same space, because I'm a body. I'm limited. God is not. So the worship that he demands is not confined to any particular place, but it's confined, listen to this, to a particular kind of person. One who will worship God in spirit and in truth. 
Now, friends, I need to do some defining work with you for a second because when most of us in this room hear the word worship, we think of an enjoyable, emotional experience centered around God. And that could be part of worship. But do you know what the word worship in your Bible actually means? To prostrate yourself before someone. You don't even, we don't even use that word. Unless we're talking about cancer. But in front of another individual showing their superiority and your inferiority. Worship is actually showing God's superiority, your inferiority, in spirit and in truth. It isn't just something that you do with your body. It's something that controls every part of you. And it isn't some mysterious worship to the great spirit in the sky. It needs to be informed by truth. There is a real God to worship. There is a real God to rely upon. There is a real God to submit yourself to. And so the spirit, this worship must come in spirit and in truth. And so she thought it was about a place. And he says, no, it's about a particular person. It's about the person who worships in spirit and truth. God is seeking that kind of person. You thought that it was all about you know, this particular debate. No, it is about you wholeheartedly laying yourself out before God, the true God, the God that's been revealed not just in Genesis through Deuteronomy, but the God who was revealed in Genesis through Malachi and whom we know to be revealed in Matthew through Revelation as well. He says, you, you need to worship this God. You need to worship Him in this way. It is about worship. It isn't just about your felt need. It is about your factual need. You are wicked before Him. You have followed another way. You need to come to Him in worship, in truth. And at this point, she's, she's kind of confused. What she tries to do is punt on the conversation. For those of you who do not play football, do you know what I mean when I say punt on the conversation? So the punt is, okay, good, some people are saying no. So a punt is when you get, to, you get four downs in football and when you like, need to buy yourself a little more time because you can't make a good play, you can actually punt the ball. You can kick it way far down the field and just kind of delay the inevitable. You can put yourself in a better spot. A punt is a strategic delay. What this woman does is she's kind of overwhelmed by Jesus' teaching at this point. Think about it. She's not educated. She's not a rabbi. He has dropped some truth bombs, if you will. She wants shelter, so she punts and says, you know what? When the Messiah comes, he's going to work it all out anyway. She says, you know, okay, I get what you're saying, but you know what we really need? We need the Messiah. We need the Christ. We need him to come, and he'll straighten all this stuff out. She says, there's a hero that's coming, and he's going to fix it all. And so the text actually says the Christ or the Messiah. That's what she's looking for. See it? Look there in your Bible, verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Now, it's interesting that John translates this for us into the Christ, but technically, those of you who are Bible academic nerdy types, they weren't looking for one called the Messiah, the Meshiach. They were looking for one called the Tehave. The Tehave. The Tehave was a Messiah-type figure, 
But because they didn't read anything beyond the book of Deuteronomy, they thought that this was a Deuteronomy 18 kind of prophet guy. He would know everything, and because he knows everything, he would be able to teach everything. And so what she says is, I'm expecting this guy who's going to come. He knows all things. I know you're saying you know stuff about religion. He knows stuff about religion. He's going to straighten it all out in the end. And then Jesus blows her mind. And his response, unfortunately, is hard to fathom because of the way that it's translated in English. But I will try to emphasize it for you in the way that I read it. Look at what he says to her in verse 26. I'm going to do it literally, not the way that it's translated. Jesus said to her, I am the one who speaks to you. Ego eimi. That special covenant name of God revealed in the book of Exodus, Jesus says, I am He. Remember, they were expecting a prophet who knew everything. And she already knows that this guy knows a lot. And it seems that it just may click with her on how she can enjoy this relationship with God. Now, it's right about the time that we want to know whether or not this teaching from Jesus connected with this woman from Samaria that John will masterfully interrupt the narrative. Like, we're at the crest of the mountain. We're wondering what's on the other side. How will she respond to Jesus? And you know what John does? He cuts the camera angle. He goes somewhere else. And so we move from the conversation to the climax of this. And what I want you to note is that, just this is a literary observation, friends, but see it. John is going to switch back and forth from perspective to perspective to perspective. Jesus is still the focal point, but I want you to imagine it like a camera. So the, the, camera will come shot, the, 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 the camera shot will come from one side, and you'll see Jesus and the woman, and then it'll switch over, and you'll see Jesus and his disciples. And it'll switch back and forth, back and forth. Because he wants you to, 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 to catch the climax of this. Notice how the camera angle switches. It's almost as if maybe this visual helps. What Jesus starts to do at this point is he plays a chess match with both hands. He's got one thing going over on his left side. He's got something else going over on his right side. He's, he's handling two different things at one time. As you look at this, this perspective of Jesus and his disciples, they interrupt in verse 27. Notice that just then, his disciples came back. Like right when you want to find out, hey, what's she going to do? What's she going to say? They come back, and what is it that they're thinking? Why in the world is he talking with the woman in the middle of the day? Why is he talking with a Samaritan? Like the text clues us in to their confusion. Like he's about something intentional. They don't get what he's up to. They think this is bad form. They think that he has torn up a precious taboo. But then the camera angle switches again. Verse 28. So the woman left her water jar. You don't even get to hear what she says. She takes off. She leaves her water jar there, so it's obviously pretty urgent. And it says that she went away into the town and said to the people, 
Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Now, she doesn't make a clear confession, but like she thought of him as just a religious guy, and then she thinks of him as a prophet, and now she's asking if he's the Christ. There's something growing in her. And so, here's the deal. The woman who would stay away from everybody is now talking to anybody. She is now saying, he told me everything. I imagine that there were probably a few men in that village who were uber interested as to whether or not he would tell everything. And what the text says, the the Greek tense is very clear in this. It's an imperfect. They were coming out to Jesus. They just kept coming. More and more people were hearing. This thing disrupted the entire village in the middle of the day. We're talking siesta time, right? People are taking midday naps. She's waking them up. They're coming out to the well. And so that camera angle is going, and then it switches back to the disciples again. So while the Samaritans are beginning to make their way forward, Jesus is having this key conversation with the disciples in verses 31 to 38. And you know what he does with them because they're so confused? He says, guys, I need you to get something. I need you to understand that this very thing that shocks you, that disgusts you, this thing that you can't believe that I'm engaged in in this moment, this is the very mission of God. This is the reason why he sent me in the first place, and this is the reason why I'm sending you. Do you remember John 3, 16 and 17? It's worth looking. Just flip one page back. There... Jesus described why he came to the earth. And notice it in verse 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Why did he give his son? That whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God loved the world that he gave his only son. Look at verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. When you read John 3, 16 to 17, do you in any way, shape, or form think that Jesus has come just to save the Jewish people? No, sir. No, ma'am. Jesus is clarifying for them, this may be a shocking, disgusting work to you, but this is the very reason why I came. He sent me to reach the world. He sent me to reach the repugnant other. This is our mission. And he uses it. He describes it in terms of farming. Something that they could have easily connected with. And he's saying, look, the harvest is already here. You're normally thinking, all right, four months later, the harvest is going to come. But he says, I'm telling you, the fields are already wide in the harvest. It's already ready. Now is payday. Now, friends, we live in a culture, we live in a society that we don't understand delayed gratification. We think, if I get, you know, if I work for one hour, I should get paid by the end of the week. Or I should get paid by the end of the month. I don't know if you've ever done a garden, but it, bad grammar on purpose, it don't work that way. Do you understand that in the true farming world, some people will sow and they won't see a dime for months? Jesus is saying, some are going to sow, some are going to reap indeed, but here's the deal. As soon as the guy sows, they're going to be able to reap. There is a new time here in which souls will be harvested unto eternal life. The time has come for all that the prophets were doing in the Old Testament and all that John the Baptist has already done. The time has come for us now to reap on this. It is time for the world, not just the Jews, but for the world to experience eternal life. And so this is what he's saying to his disciples. 
And then it switches back one more time to the Samaritans, and here's the end of the story. Verses 39 to 42. Speaking of the harvest being white, the camera angle switches once more, and the Jews, I mean, excuse me, the Samaritans from Sychar begin to pour in to Jesus. And the woman's initial testimony had led them to be curious. And it says, this is the first time it says it in the text. Look at it, verse 40. Excuse me, verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in Him. They were converted. They they believed in Him in a saving way because of the woman's testimony. And so when the Samaritans came to Him, they asked Him to stay with them. And listen to this. He not only stayed for a couple hours at a well in the middle of the day, He stayed for two more days. That means He had to sleep in their houses. He set up camp among the repugnant other. This is what he came to do. And so they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed, listen to this friends, the Savior of the world. This is John three sixteen and 17 turned into a title. Do you know that this phrase, the Savior of the world, isn't used by any other author in Scripture? It's only used twice in the Bible. Once here and another time in the book of 1 John. But you know where this title is used? This is interesting. When you look back into the Greco-Roman literature of the day, this particular title, Savior of the World, was used to describe numerous Greek deities like Zeus and Asclepius, the various gods of the mystery cults, Uh, The Greek gods, the Roman emperors, including Caesar Augustus himself, Tiberius, Nero, they all called themselves the Savior of the world. You know what this lady says, and she doesn't even realize she's saying it. The ultimate hero that the whole world has always longed for, this is him. He is not the Savior of the few. He is not the Savior of the Jew. He is the Savior of the world. He is not confining himself to some particular race. He is not confining himself to some particular status of morality. He is actually reaching the world. I have to make a cultural note here. It is interesting that in light of the raging debates over critical race theory, that Christianity somehow gets pegged as the religion of the white, upper-class patriarchy. Friends, this was a Jewish thing. And because he's the savior of the world, it jumped skin colors and went broad. And as the old song says that I sang growing up in Sunday school, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the children of the world. This is no local thing. God intended for this to reach all, even the repugnant other. So that's the account. Let me give you some applications. First of all, the application for the distant. An application for the distant. There could be some of you here today who say, I am not in this this circle I identify with this woman at the well. I know what it is to be dissatisfied. 
maybe your life up to this point, even in a place as beautiful and successful as Naples, could identify with what one poet wrote of the rather profligate Lord Byron. He was a poet in his own right, but he was also a rather perverted man. He experienced much in this world, and so one wrote of him after his death that he drank every cup of joy, heard every trump of fame, drank early, deeply drank, drank draughts that common millions might have quenched, then died of thirst because there was no more to drink. Friends, some of you have known pleasure. You've known profit. You've known purpose. But you still have no peace because you have not known Jesus. One of the most powerful testimonies I've ever heard of this is Malcolm Muggeridge. Most of you would not be familiar with him. Maybe the best way I can explain him to you is he was something like a British Rush Limbaugh in the mid-20th century. He was very popular. He was actually an atheist who was um, converted in some way, at least out of atheism into some form of belief in the Scriptures. I can't speak to his testimony. But though he was a very successful man, he would testify nearing his own death the following. He says, I may, I suppose, regard myself as being a relatively successful man. People occasionally stare at me in the street. That's fame. I can fairly easily earn enough to qualify for admission to the highest slopes of inland revenue. That's success. Furnished with money and a little fame, even the elderly, if they care to, can partake of trendy diversions. That's pleasure. It might happen once in a while that something I said or wrote as sufficiently heated to persuade myself that it represented a serious impact on our time. That's fulfillment. Yet I say to you, and I beg of you to believe me, multiply these tiny triumphs by a million, add them all together, and they are nothing, less than nothing, a positive impediment measured against one draught of that living water that Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty. Friends, it will not satisfy. Only Jesus satisfies. If you feel that aching in your soul, it could be because you have not quenched it with the water that He Himself provides. I know we like the facts around here, but let me speak to the felt need for a moment. It may be there for a reason. You may need to, as the prophet Jeremiah said, forsake the broken cisterns that you've been trying to find satisfaction in and return to the living water who is God in Jesus Christ. Friends, this water is for those who are absolutely thirsty, those who are dissatisfied. It is also for those of you who are despised. I don't think anyone in, here in this church would ever say of another individual, and I can say this honestly, that they are repugnant. But you may feel that way. It's interesting. Sexual sin has a unique capacity to stain our souls. Everyone feared 
Hawthorne's scarlet letter, this thing that would be on the outside that would identify one as, as one who has sinned sexually. And yet it's the stain on, on the inside that many are like, I don't, I, I, you don't know what I've done. You don't know with whom I've been. You don't know how many marriages I've destroyed. You don't know how I have treated this body and others. And yet the text is actually targeting those not who find themselves to be righteous, but those who experience themselves to be repugnant. You know what the question is about Christianity? Not are you good enough, but are you bad enough? That's the question. Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. It is only when you recognize your rebellion as repugnant before God that you can ever receive the grace that He offers in Christ. And so if you are here today and you experience that shame and you experience that distance and you think that there ain't no way that He would ever receive me into His company, into His life, I tell you, come drink of the waters freely. You are the very one for whom he came. This is his offer. These are his words, not mine. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, and he who has no money. Come, buy, eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen, diligently... Diligently to me, eat what is good, delight yourself in rich food, incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live. Seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. That is why Christ died. He died to pay the penalty for your sin. He rose again for your justification. And if you would just like re repent, if you would turn from your sin, if you would trust in Him, you can enjoy life forever. So that's the application for those of you who are distant. He invites you in even today. And if you don't know what that means or if you have questions about that, please, I beg you, talk to one of us before you leave. It is simple. And eternally satisfying. Briefly, application for disciples. Friends, I have to be quick here. I wanted to spend more time. But I want you to know that this text is not just about the distant. It is about disciples. Jesus is intentionally trying to teach you who already follow him something. You cannot check out on this message and say, I raised my hand at the beginning. I know John 4. I get it. I've already partaken of the water. Did you know that this text was written not only for the distant, but also the disciple? He is intentionally trying to engage them that his mission is their mission. Do you remember Acts 1.8, that iteration of the Great Commission? He says, you will be my witnesses where? In Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Do you know why he had to include Samaria in there? Because if they would have just heard... Judea and the other uttermost um, parts of the earth, they would have skipped it. Let's just be really honest right now. I don't want to admit it, but the truth is we do in some way, because of how we've been raised, because of remnant sin in our human bodies, we do have this group of people. They may be in our family. They may be in our social media profile that we find in some way repugnant. Birds of a feather flock together, right? 
You know what it is to experience Christian community, and you love it, but the truth is some of us may not be engaged in the mission that Jesus has entrusted to us because of our penchant for our personal comfort. I I leave you with Spurgeon. I, I would just love to have been a fly on the wall in this particular sermon. But, but heed it well. He says, Some of you good people who do nothing except go to public meetings, the Bible readings and prophetic conferences, and other forms of spiritual dissipation would be a good deal better Christians if you would look after the poor and needy around you. If you would just tuck up your sleeves for work and go tell the gospel to dying men, you would find your spiritual health mightily restored for very much of the sickness of Christians comes through their having nothing to do. All feeding and no working makes men spiritual diseptics. Be idle, careless, with nothing to live for, nothing to care for, nothing to pray for, no backslider to lead back to the cross, no trembler to encourage, no child to tell of a Savior, no gray-headed man to enlighten in the good things of God, no object, in fact, to live for. And who wonders if you begin to groan and to murmur and to look within until you are ready to die of despair? You know, we've defined the mission of this church as raising up generations of God-glorifying Christ followers. That includes every one of you in here. But you know, there's three aspects of that. There's the personal delighting in Christ. There's the serving of His bride. But then there's the advancing of the gospel. Total transparency here. I think we're doing really well at the first two. I can't speak as strongly for the third. Now, you know me, I've said two weeks in a row, I'm not trying to produce guilt, produce guilt, produce guilt, but at some point, the Scriptures challenge us, and this is challenging us with the very mission that Christ has entrusted to His people. We may be a little too busy with our personal development and our partnership with one another that we are not consistently, intentionally, faithfully, proactively reaching out to those around us. And I don't know. Only you can answer before God if you have been faithful in that arena. But this is the mission entrusted to us in this text. Jesus said, it's not only what I do, so I have sent you to do the same. And so, friends, we close with a simple appeal. For some of you, Will you come to the living water today? And for others, will you go with the living water today? We're to close in a prayer, a song. We're going to ask our musicians to come. We want to pray now that our Lord Jesus Christ would be known, enjoyed by the peoples. Not just our people, but the nations, the peoples. So let's stand together, please, as we sing this closing song of intercession, asking God to make His Son known as we proclaim His grace among the nations.